Welcome to another episode of Quaggling Sand. Today is the 25th of May, 2021. I'm trying now to uh, record weekly on Tuesday because nothing, uh, no, no extra time on Mondays lately. But uh, Tuesday, I can at least figure out where Monday left me to get into the week, and then uh, and then I can end with the other newsletter. Did I mention that? Uh, I'm using Substack for the show notes newsletter that will get sent out when this particular episode and each weekly episode gets posted to Anchor. And then at the weekend, uh, rather than doing yet another show episode of the show, I can send out a little update newsletter and if anybody wants to subscribe to that it's totally separate so you can uh, and in so doing i'm trying out the two newsletter services which i will i will eventually comment on uh i'm going to touch on one thing in this episode do we really need me ops yes we do let me tell you why after i take a drink a little water for the uh, our weather in, in Las Vegas is getting slightly drier. Maybe I don't know. Anyway, as I'm making this uh, show, I was or actually right before I was configuring my Google Takeout for Google Photos. I have two accounts. I have multiple accounts actually, but I have two accounts that were connected in some way to a an android phone or tablet or whatever over the years so i have i have photos in in the google photos feature application service whatever it is i have photos in both accounts in the photos view of my data uh, from like 2012 I think I had my uh, when it, well whenever they enabled uploading of photos. I guess that's when it started. I've had an Android phone since the first Android device, so somewhere back there, those were cool phones, even though they were big clunky things. But that's uh, that's for another day. Um, I do miss a keyboard phone, so I'm I'm doing the Google Takeout on my other account because I've since had Google Fi. I took, um, I basically went all in on Google Fi with one Google account. And so the other one is sort of like, I saw I have Google One, I back up all my photos in original quality, whatever that really means. So the other account, uh, if you don't know this, uh, their Google, I know this sounds crazy, but they're changing the way one of their services works. (laughs) At least they're not getting rid of it completely. Uh, So Google Photos on the other account that I have not paid anything for. I'm just going to take them out and not deal with it. So I downloaded it. It was about seven, seven and a half gigs of data. So to Google's credit, they do make it reasonably painless to download your Google Takeout, aptly named. But it occurs to me... And uh, so uh, when you read the show notes, you can read about my views on Flickr, which I have been a premium user of since I I think it was 2009, whatever it was. It's in the notes. So I've been a Flickr user premium for many of those years, for, for many years. And one of the things I thought was cool about Flickr early on was the they implemented this interesting and useful API. And you could actually interact with your images in useful ways. So they kind of handed people, users, customers, um, not only a, a useful service. And you know, I've made I've made use of Flickr, though not enough for what I've paid for. Certainly over the last couple of years, uh, I it was uh, tending to be a another backup dumping ground, if you will, like automated um, uploading of all the photos on my phone, which was problematic. I don't need 
every screenshot and every downloaded image or any, you know, there's, there were just tons of things that were not my photos. So the, the, the Flickr branded mobile application on Android is problematic, but in general, I've, uh, I had relegated Flickr to other backup. So Amazon photos with prime, you know, upload all day, uh, Google one. So I get more Google drive space and photos, premium features and all that and Flickr, but Flickr is still a capable platform. And, uh, I do appreciate that in the context that I'm going to get to, which is, um, enabling customers, users, people to do things rather than letting them. And, uh, you can, you can read my thoughts on this in the notes, so I won't harp on it here, but uh, I'm, I'm noticing more and more that the notion of letting your customer or your user do something, it's touted in, in reviews or in press releases, whatnot, that, um, oh, now Android lets you, you know, fill in the blank. It could be lets you uh, adjust the brightness, uh, uh, lets you have a night mode, or, you know, changing the uh, contrast, or, you know, flipping colors, dark, dark mode, I should say, dark mode at night. And that this goes for everything, right? So your um, your podcast client that you maybe you're listening to this with right now, your podcast client lets you download a podcast. Well, what does it what does that mean? Lets me? I could download a, a podcast without your application. So what is it really doing? Is it enabling me to consume what I would like to consume—a podcast or a video or a, read an article? Is it enabling me to do that when I'm offline? Maybe I'm out for a walk and I don't have good cell phone coverage away from my home Wi-Fi. So I'm just noticing more and more the difference between let and enable. And that kind of brings me around to the notion that I, I think it would be interesting and ultimately useful, although not without risk of, uh, well, <clears throat> you know, give somebody, uh, give somebody enough rope and they'll hang something. But I think if we, if those of us who are involved with development of products and services, especially in the technology arena, but pretty much anything nowadays, if you imagine put yourself in the place of your customer or user. I don't know why I'm differentiating those, but I am. So put yourself in their place and, you know, do I want to be let, do I want to, Hey, this coffee machine lets you brew two different kinds of coffee or it enables you to brew as many different kinds of coffee as you can imagine. Uh, I had an interaction with, uh, spin S P I N N one of the co-founders and they are convinced that their coffee machine, which makes a centrifugal, it is literally a centrifuge. Yeah, I know centripetal force, the fictitious centrifugal force, uh, but it's a centrifugal espresso machine and they, uh, they had the mechanism on display at a food tech uh, sort of mini show as part uh, kind of attached geographically and temporally, but not administratively to CES um, about two years ago. So I met these guys They're They're based in Holland and the mechanism, you know, fit, fit in your hand. It was a, a small motor with a, a chamber to uh, spin the coffee and water. And there was a little grinder and, you know, so all this self-contained unit, and one of the things we discussed was that uh, they have tens of variables that they measure. Uh, I'm going to guess uh, not only the mass that I'm hoping they measure the input mass of the coffee bean, output mass of the grind, 
I don't know if they can determine the grind size. That would be tricky. Uh, I mean, certainly you have the setting of the burrs, but the you know what what do you actually end up with? Um, there are ways to do that, but probably not at that price point reliably. Uh, water temperature, water volume, and many more things. I think they measure TDS, total dissolved solids. They can probably measure... Um, I'm getting, you know, output temperature. So anyway, there, there are tens of variables and the user interface shows, I'm not picking on spin by the way, but this is just a really good example in my opinion. I've never actually, uh, I had a sampling, I think I had two espresso shots out of the machine they had set up at the table. And then they had one, uh, inside view that you could, you know, there, there's the mechanism. So the, the coffee is fine. It tasted great. So the, I believe it's an application on a phone, which is getting to be a little weird on its own. Uh, you must own a mobile phone to use your kitchen in the near future, I think, or anything. But anyway, so the, the, the application, the workflow for the user was you take a picture of the coffee bean bag or container, which I mean, I guess that means don't throw it away. <laughs> You, um, there are programmed profiles for the bean, you put in your beans and you get espresso and you can adjust, I believe you can adjust, adjust, um, temperature amount of water. So basically out, do I want, do I want a solo dopio? And I'm, I think I didn't, I haven't looked at the app in a long time. So I think it was uh, temperature output temperature, I hope, uh, water volume out and probably strength, some variation of, I guess that would be with the, in conjunction with the water volume. So you set these three, I think it was three settings and it does its work and you get your coffee out. And I said, would it, would it be interesting to enable people to have access to many more of the variables, certainly the measured values and then the settings to adjust the coffee to their own taste and possibly even learn practical learning, experimental experience about what happens to coffee when you grind it too fine or you grind it too coarse or you, you know, use water that's too hot, etc. Or, hey, maybe I need to, uh, it would be cool if they actually measured, <laughs> this would be way out of the price range, but, um, measure the incoming water, uh, maybe you could say salinity, but a way to measure, I mean, you can measure the conductivity, right? So the mineral content of the water grossly, yeah, it's not going to tell you how much magnesium versus sodium is in there, but, um, it, I just thought it would be interesting to enable the coffee drinker who has purchased this little coffee reactor with so many variables, so many knobs and, and dials and buttons virtually insert internally. Why not enable? They, they thought that was a crazy idea. They said, well, you know, like, no, we, we have it programmed. It makes the coffee that the bean, the, the provider of the bean, the profile that they have, uh, established for, what they would call an optimal cup. What is an optimal cup of, co cup of coffee to the end user? It's the coffee that tastes good to them. And if they're not allowed to change it, they, uh, this coffee machine lets you brew the coffee prescribed by the, the source of the beans or the, the roaster, whatever that model model of uh, specification is. So you, they let you make a cup of coffee. Uh, I feel that they should enable you to experiment with the device that you've purchased. So that was a point of contention. Neither here nor there, except as an example for here and there. So Flickr, uh, Flickr enables you to download all your photos, by the way. And I did that when the mobile application was uploading every, every item, everything it could find in my phone and across multiple phones, <laughs> it was going nuts. And, um, uh, 
some of the photos were not my like they're not mine to upload now all my photos upload as private so it wasn't a huge deal but why do i need to upload every image known to man that had ever landed and you know it would if i downloaded an image from my amazon photos into whatever directory uh, it would end up in uploaded to Flickr. Like I already had that uploaded. Why, you know, so it would end up looping and, and anyway, it's kind of a administrative nightmare, but so I downloaded, uh, everything that was uploaded again. I figured, okay, I'll just make sure I keep it. And then I deleted everything that had no, there was no reason to, I don't need a thousand screenshots from five years of phone and device use. <laughs> but anyway, the, the Flickr uh, idea to me is much more interesting than, say, Instagram, which is there. there is an unofficial API. There is a bizarre API that Facebook provides now that you must be a business. It can't just be my account. And it, it becomes like, a, well, yeah, what, what are they going to let you do? And that can be a little bit frustrating but I guess in, in exchange for the free service that is pelt me with advertising and collect all of my data and share it with your advertisers and profit, you get what you get. So there is, um, there's something I was going to talk about. Bear with me. I found it. Uh, I'm going to edit out a little bit of silence that was there. I was uh, checking on something that I wrote down. Um, so anyone who's ever used GitHub knows about the actions now, Get the Git, GitOps, I think they're calling it. Uh, anyone who's ever used a Makefile, anybody who's ever uh, done a whole lot of things when it comes to software development and even hardware development, uh, anyone who's ever done CNC machining, anyone who's ever, uh, automated a spreadsheet, right? There are tools and methods that exist if you are willing to dive in to accomplish things like, Hey, I would like to apply a filter to, uh, all of my photos. Hey, I would like to update particular files based on some particular parameter. Hey, I would like to add some metadata to the files in this folder that are that the data themselves are derived from somewhere else. So there, there are ways to, and these are simple examples, but there are ways to trigger on things and to connect things and to take certain actions. And there's a, there was the, probably one of the first consumer facing tools that hinted at this was called IFTTT, IFT. So if this, then that. And it introduced the user to a fairly rudimentary programmability to take, you know, a social media post. If, if Instagram photo posted, then share to Tumblr. That was one of mine. Uh, if Twitter posts tagged with something, then share to Facebook, right? So all these fairly simple one-shot, you know, test, trigger, test, action, done. And it was that was interesting. Although anybody who ever checked out Yahoo Pipes would be like uh, <laughs> somewhat disappointed with the limitations of IFTTT, but Yahoo Pipes and a lot of Yahoo everything Always a little hit or miss, which is a shame because Yahoo Pipes was, was substantially more innovative, but a little bit more complicated to use, which uh, that's the way it goes. So the challenge uh, in my mind is how do you enable users and customers to use the thing, the product, the service that they have rent, bought, have rented, bought, uh, subscribe to, whatever. How do they get to use that product the way that they want to? How are they, how are they enabled 
to get the most out of what, say, what what me, what I as a developer, what you as a developer or a maker of something, <clears throat> how do we enable our customers to use the things that they're getting from us to the to the max to, so that at the end of the day they say, yeah, that not only is that a capable product, but because I was enabled to use it in the way that I need to, I was able to integrate it in with my other things, right? Nobody... Nobody from uh, Craftsman says, hey, here's a Craftsman hammer, but you can't use it with your snap-on wrench. Well, maybe we'll let you use it with the <laughs> the socket uh, set, but you can't use it with the open-end or box wrenches. Well, what does that mean? So, and, you know, by the way, you might use a hammer to break a uh, a lug or a, you know, take a, a, a an overly tightened nut off a bolt or something with the with the wrench. So the way and these are simple tools, right? So how do you enable your customers to do these things? So the coffee machine example I gave, or you know, today we have everybody has a phone in their pocket, and uh, you know, Apple is notoriously more locked down, but Android is not much better in many respects. How do you, you know, hey, it lets you automate something. Now we have Google, what the hell's it called? Uh, I don't know if it's actions. I can't remember now. But you can do things like answer a call. You know, they have a very, a very restricted set of prescribed actions and you can attach voice commands. So make a call or send a message or something like this. But then there's the tasker application that has a lot of automation capability with a weird programming language. Um, I don't know if I'd call it a language. You can certainly install Python on your phone or other programming languages. You can install a Tmux and run a, uh, a little Linux machine on your, or a Linux installation on your machine. So there, there are various levels of hackery that you can do that you can uh, explore on your phone, but you, you have to be willing to go there by design. They are not, they are not out to enable They're <clears throat> really, when you, when you think about it, they're really out to keep, keep their users in a sort of a fenced off area under the guise of protecting the user, which to some extent they do, but it can be very frustrating. Um, you know, sorry, you don't have root access. Sorry, you can't do that. <laughs> the application has stored data in a, a private area. For example, if you want to, uh, if you're using WhatsApp, they are fairly notorious about storing the data on the phone, on the device, to a directory you can't get to. So you have to use their own data transfer scheme if you want to move an account from one device to another very restrictive it's a reminder that it's not you're not that, that they are letting you use the application to communicate with people so this is uh, one of the reasons that I've been migrating away from restrictive sandbox silo applications and services and swinging back towards you know you own your data you can use the service the way you see fit I will say that Anchor, which is a nice turnkey, you know, hey, you want to host a podcast? It's free. Upload it. You're up and running. Here's your URL for your feed. Here's each episode. Yeah, okay, nice. And they they redistribute to, you know, out of the box. I think it's <clears throat> three or up to six kind of automatically. You know, I think one of them is Spotify and one of them is um, – I'm not looking at it right now, but, uh, you know, getting into the Apple and more, let's say upscale <laughs> pinky out podcast platforms, you have to actually do, do a little bit more work, but they, they offer a nice service for free, but what they do not offer is an easy way to automate the publishing of a new podcast episode 
that <clears throat> that doesn't require manually, you know, clicking on things. Now I'm sure there's a you know you can you can always manipulate a web based interface, but it would be nice if they said, hey, by the way, if you'd like to publish to a to publish it to your website or upload it to a, a shared directory on your insert storage service, you know, Box, Dropbox, Google Drive, OneDrive, et cetera, et cetera. You know, hey, when there's a new, actually, I don't even know if IFTT does this, but, or Zapier or any of the other new services now, but hey, when you upload a, a new MP3 or podcast episode, maybe it's OG, whatever, it will copy the text into the, you know, the RSS feed item, publish, etc. So, or schedule a, a, a publication. There's there's a fairly straightforward workflow that can be triggered from a master or main RSS feed. Right, that's my primary feed. You know, anybody who does uh, most things in computers, there's a primary and a secondary notion, right? So why can I not automate my podcast episode publication? Well, because they do not let me. Similarly with Substack and with Review, they're both nice and they have a lot of features. If you haven't tried those, eh, why not? Free. But uh, Review enables you to connect data sources. I guess they let you get some data from an RSS feed or from a Facebook or Twitter account or whatever. But can I trigger the sending of a newsletter based on like an auto assembled, like maybe I want to attach a summary, almost like a, an open graph based feed, right? Like, Hey, I'll grab uh, three articles from my blog and I'll post summary you know, sort of similar to a, a, a news, a news feed on uh, Facebook. Just do that automatically. And yes, it does remove some of the personality of a hand administered newsletter. So I can appreciate that. I think, um, uh, I think Instagram wanted to not have APIs cause they wanted genuine personable and personal content good high quality postings directly from a person from a mobile device only. So, okay, maybe there's a rationale, but at the end of the day, maybe I want to publish a newsletter of my own content, but have the, the methodology of assembling the content, especially if I want to do like three or four or five newsletters, depending on the interest area, some subscribed, some free, you know, it starts to become a full-time job just to administer your own engagement with humans. Maybe that's where the value proposition is. I don't know. But either way, the, the tools I'm using in association with this podcast are not easily automatable. So that will probably be a topic of discussion later when I say something like, hey, guess what? I'm <laughs> I'm only publishing at the main you know, URL for uh, an RSS feed. By the way, RSS feeds need to go, but that is another discussion for another time as well. Uh, I think they're a throwback to the good old days when internet connections were slow and internet storage was difficult and even priced out of uh, reach for some people. Anyway, so RSS feeds, not not a huge fan, but they are what they are right now, and so the, the main RSS feed for this show should be at a place that I host and I should be able to construct the item contents and distribute them to wherever they need to be distributed for resharing and, and reuse with different podcatchers and all that. And that capability should be enabled for the casual user. Uh, but instead, many of these services will not let the user have that level of control of their, their own publication, their own content. And that's unfortunate. And that extends, like I said, to coffee machines or to 
Nest cameras or to, you know, maybe, maybe your local law enforcement agency has more access and control of your front door camera than you do. I don't even, I don't own one, so I can only imagine. Hey, it's story time. I'm going to tell you a tale about my time at Palm. I owned a Palm Pilot 5000 when they first launched. I can't remember how. I think I got the developer version or something. Developer version of the Palm 5000 sounds about right. So Palm Palm Pilot with the the first of graffiti. Although I will say when I worked at the in the Newton group at Apple prior to my getting the Palm Pilot graffiti made its first appearance when I was there on the Newton as a little text entry box that would float over the, you know, whatever, if you're using the, the note scrolling thing, by the way, the, 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 the note app, the note application on the, the Newton, I think was a, was an interesting, cool idea. Maybe that needs to make a comeback. Hmm. It's another, another idea for another time. Anyway. So the graffiti, box was floating over things and you would, you know, what, what is this? You, an A is like an upside down V. And after, uh, I want to say probably three years or so, I, I actually had a message pad 100 that got stolen, uh, when I first moved to Silicon Valley in 1993. So I think I was in the Newton group around 96, say, so Message pad 120 was out. We were working on the message pad 2000, which actually did ship, I think. Anyway, so the the graffiti application was pretty cool, but very weird. And down the road a bit, Palm Pilot became uh, the Palm and Handspring, I guess, uh, turned into phones. Uh, the Palm Pilot 7, I think, had the wireless weird wireless connection there's some weird radio that was not really a phone um i don't remember the name was it like the treo or something anyway so there were there were various palm based phones out there it was very pilot centric and somewhere along the lines i was uh i was able to how was this oh it was because of my newton connections actually a person who I will not name because I don't care for him, but he, uh, back then that was not the case, but we got a, we had a little sit down interview for lunch with the, I think he was the director of engineering at the time. And we, that, that led to an interview where I met a lot of very smart people. I brought my Android one, I think it was the, uh, the very first Android device with the flip up screen and the keyboard and all that, the trackball. What a crazy device. And we talked about what worked with that phone and what didn't. Hey, that's foreshadowing for an FFS episode sometime. Uh, we talked about the what was working, what wasn't, what, you know, how do you debug something like that, or how do you figure out how to improve, you know, what, whatever the case was. So we ended up having, it was an all-technical meeting, all very interesting people, and... Uh, I ended up working there, of course. And the fun part was I was hired in the QA test group, but I very quickly, just, you know, I was doing my own thing because we had a very short runway to get this phone into Sprint stores and selling uh, lest Sprint and Palm run out of runway. So it was there was a little bit of pressure on everybody to get this thing out. And I remember I worked 30 days in a row. My first 30 days were, you know, hit the ground running and don't stop running. And I told someone at some point, because I started automating things, I started writing um, the phone, the pre was based completely on Linux internally. And they were making a, a essentially a web, uh, a, a one page web app interface. So you'd write, uh, JavaScript apps, or you could write shell scripts, you could run Python, you could, everything was, it was just a little Linux box in your pocket. Uh, one of the coolest things I had ever 
played with uh, as far as like a, this is a commercial product that is essentially does everything my desktop computer could do obviously with less memory and you know less of everything but um yeah it was a, i <laughs> that that is where i think um, mobile devices should go not these weird silos anyway so i was there working all the time uh for better or worse i could walk to work in about 20 25 minutes cuz there was a giant field or something in the way but uh it was slightly faster to drive with with traffic and, and turn signals. Uh, walking because of the terrain was not quite as convenient, but I could walk there. Was that the case? Or no? No, I'm thinking of Jawbone, but but same with Palm. I I could walk to Palm uh, pretty easily. It would just take a while. So I was close enough though that I did get a phone call at four in the morning one time. And I did show up to address a potential issue, but that's, we'll get to there in a second. So at some point, uh, there were three flash memory vendors on the approved vendor list, Micron, Samsung, Hynix. So Micron was domestic, uh, out of Idaho. They, their flash parts that we we're going to use in the design were problematic in that if you removed power, they would corrupt the data on the, on the flash. And because the Palm Pre had a user serviceable battery, which you see less and less often, partially because of this problem, if the user pulled the battery at the wrong time, it, the, all of the storage would be corrupted. So corrupting during a write is if you know that's unfortunate but if you're <laughs> it, it, you could liken it to like uh, a record needle getting dragged across you know what vinyl vinyl records yeah uh, a needle getting dragged across the entire record scratching everything if you turn the, the power off to the turntable so not a good fit so that got removed from the AVL which left us with two uh, vendors of flash memory so Somewhere between that point and a very, very urgent meeting, uh, there, there began to be a realization that something weird was happening and there was some data loss if you were emailing people or it was, you know, a lot of activity and that's where it starts, right? You have no idea what's going on. So you have to try to reproduce these things. And I wrote, uh, I wrote a Python script that would, from the phone was it from the phone or from no you could do it well anyway you could run it anywhere and it would just start sending email to any accounts that you could then sync with the phone you could you know using imap or whatever because that was the first symptom was uh receiving a lot of emails so we just had it emailing like crazy receiving emails eventually it became clear that it was disk operations and then here's the challenge. Uh, everything was tight. Everything, including allocation of devices for development. So literally wandering around our building three where we were design, you know, developing the, the pre, asking to borrow extra, you know, hey, you have an extra phone, you have an extra phone. And so we ended up with a pie. I think I had 22 phones maybe devices device under test dot if you like and we had to figure out how to test this thing to see what was going on so uh kenneth albanowski yeah he wrote a sort of a disk torture tool that could capture its operations so we could replay them and it would check, so it would do a, a disk operation and check the results. So, hmm, how do we run this in such a way as we can let it run for days and days and days? So I had 22, I think I was, I'll say it was 22. I had 22 phones. And I had each one of them running Linux, which was nice. And I had become more and more familiar in my 
low-level hackery about, uh, or I'd become more, more and more familiar with how the phones booted and what happened during the boot process and how you could get them to boot off of an external device. By the way, all these are very cool things. I wish phones shipped like this out of the box. You can probably, with developer tools, you can accomplish some of these things. But anyway, so so I set out to build the Octopus I uh, visited Fry's Electronics, which of course is no more. Uh, I bought all of the hubs that I could get that had been approved or at least uh, qualified as somewhat reliable. USB was problematic in those years. So our, our USB guru said, yeah, get some of these. I think they were CyberPower four-port USB hubs. And I got all the ones, all the hubs they had. And I was able to attach all 22 phones to one host Linux machine. I pulled all of their batteries out and attached what we, I think we called them, uh, I think, I think we just called them fake batteries. So they were, they were, they would register as a, a battery installed, but it was um, attached to a power supply. Or maybe I didn't even need to do that. Anyway, so each each device was attached to this host through these USB um, host uh, hubs. So I had these twenty-two phones spread out on a table. They would boot up into as as minimal a runtime as possible. That's why I'm thinking the battery wasn't in there because I think it was basically booting into uh, like a service uh, service mode. All right? If anybody's ever booted into single user. So I think something like boot P into single user running, uh, oh, and mount, mount the, uh, the host controller, the octopus host, uh, for capturing the log data from these disk operations, right? So you're doing disk operations on the internal storage device and you are logging to a, a network device and let them go crazy, right? So, then the, the for a little added uh, drama, I added a uh, frame buffer little twizzle that would when it started running. If it was a Hynix flash part, I think it would color the screen like you know red or green. I'm sorry, blue or green. And if it was Samsung, it would be the other. So you know, maybe Samsung was blue and Hynix was green. And then if there was a failure, if the tool that Kenneth had created, dumped out, failure, you know, disk fail. The screen would turn red. So we started these things running. We identified the Samsung parts were having problems. By the way, this was something that we weren't able to isolate initially either. So you, you start to see a coincidence like, oh, okay, the Hynix parts are working. The Samsung parts are where we're seeing this problem. Until we figured out that it was disk ops, then it was like, well, we're not really sure. Luckily, you know, isolated down to disk operations, very simple test configuration. Uh, the octopus was able to run these tests continuously for days and days and days and capturing many megabytes of data per day of per device. You know, big drive, no problem. And lo and behold, someday, it was several, you know, say it was five days in red screens. Oh, we got some Samsung failures. Okay. And that's when the real work begins, right? So now it's a question of debugging what happened. So you start working backwards on the log and you see where, okay, fail, go back, 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 operation, operation. But because Kenneth had created this tool this way, which is you know, pretty, pretty standard. I mean, I'm not diminishing what Kenneth did, but it, it was, it's just the right way to do it. So you could then replay these operations and it settled down to, these were new flash parts. They were, um, they had a coalescing scheme internally that would take uh, a particular type of write operation on a particular type of block that was not full and so on and so on. So they basically identified in a call with Samsung, you know, what was, here's what's happening. And next thing you know, um, Kenneth and Travis and I think there was one other person 
on a plane to Korea. So while they were in Korea, they were able to build new flash firmware, firmware for your flash parts to try to work around this. And so we eventually, and because we had this, you know, nonstop testing platform, the Octopus, uh, basically I would get a message from them here, try this, flash the flash parts, and then just let it run. So I could run some with some configuration. So we didn't have a lot of phones left, right? So some of those 22 started dying. By the way, the people that quote unquote loaned me their devices for testing were not happy, but that's the way it goes. So, you know, scrape up a couple of Samsung parts and get these things in a mode where we could determine, you know, if the Samsung fix would work or can, can we have a software fix, which there was a software fix. So then eventually we came up, uh, okay, here's, here are the two paths to correcting this problem. Firmware update from Samsung in the parts or uh, software fix in the way rights were handled. Because of risk considerations, they went with the software fix. So uh, Samsung had to have a different SKU for Palm that did not have that had the previous firmware rev because they were going to rev the firmware for their other customer of this part. <laughs> you may have heard of them. They are a fruit company in Cupertino, and I want to say that we were ordering. Let's say we were ordering parts for a half a million Palm Prix. And Apple was ordering parts. Oh, did I say Apple? Yeah, must have been Apple. Apple was ordering the same exact flash part for 5 million iPhones, something like that, right? Order of magnitude. So we were lucky to have <laughs> the Samsung parts because, you know, we're down to two vendors, and we're about to launch a phone that could make or break Palm and Sprint. They're all in. So for fun, I left the Octopus running, right? We Okay, we've established what we're going to do with the, with the Samsung parts. We have a fix. They become reliable. So we're, gonna, we're just going to keep hitting the Samsung parts with the, with the newest you know, path to stability. Just make sure they work. So I said, oh, I'll just let the Hynix parts run in parallel. So we'll just, we'll be hitting them all nonstop for days and days and days. So I walked into work one day. I go into my little setup in my corner of our lab with my octopus running. Oh, some red screens. That's not good. <laughs> and it was definitely not good because Hynix parts were now failing. So I'll never forget it. I walked out the door of the lab and coincidentally our director of engineering with whom I had had lunch only a short number, like maybe two or three months earlier. What happens to be walking, you know, I, I basically stopped him in his path cause he, he would have hit the door. I think if, if he hadn't gotten out of the way, I say, Hey Chris, uh, I have some device failures and he, he looked concerned. And then I said, they're Hynix and he looked horrified. And he said something like, but the Hynix parts were the supposed to work. And I said, yeah, I know. And this led to another emergency set of meetings because suddenly our, you know, order of magnitude, smaller part order from what would become our only supplier of flash parts. And, you know, there was no selling a phone without flash, right? So the make or break vendor, Samsung was now the only vendor because Hynix parts were failing. And we would find out later, while I was still at Hynix, we would find out that their wear leveling algorithm in the flash part would eventually stop. And so as we were hammering these flash parts with reads and writes and whatnot, it would eventually just write the same block over and over. and somebody uh, was able to get a micrograph of one of the failed parts and it for lack of a better term had a burn mark because <laughs> the flash part the block where it was doing these continuous writes without wear leveling at all had destroyed itself so take from that what you will uh the take home for me was that uh, 
a little bit of like hackery in the dark, right? I, I had no idea that Hynix parts were going to be a, a problem. Nobody did. But I had gone to the trouble of setting up this machine. And by the way, Palm at the time had a Solaris machine from Sun that could run one test on one test device. I could, I mean, I could, you know, one device on one Sun bus. So this is an entire Sun workstation. The dot in the dot com, you know, those things that could handle all kinds of stuff you threw at them. I'm attaching one Palm Pre and putting, you know, some huge, like four megabytes or some, some large amount of test infrastructure onto this device. So it's not shipping. It's not, it's not a legitimate product test and you got to run these tests for a couple of days and you get one output. To me, that was insane. So the ability to enable some ingenuity, some ideation and innovation can sometimes solve company killing problems. And so, uh, it was a good learning experience for me. And I've, I've often told people that I am, I look fondly at the, my learning experiences from Palm, even though it was kind of a headache, but it was a very interesting experience to see how coloring outside the lines can definitely save the day now and then. I did on one occasion say out loud when someone said something about automation or, or writing some test scripts or whatever it was, I said, I, I just want to work less. <laughs> and that somehow came back to me as someone, uh, they heard you complaining that you don't like working here. And I said, no, uh, I've been working here every single day since I started more than 10 hours a day. I want to work less. I would like to work like a normal person, <laughs> go home at the end when the sun is still out, maybe work. So it was that sort of a work environment. People were on edge to say the least, but it was an interesting, um, an interesting outcome. And it, it, it kind of, it kind of, uh, reinforced my, my own personal notions about the thinking outside the box, right? Like just because, uh, a management architecture, <laughs> the hierarchy of, uh, of people distancing them, themselves from the day-to-day -day grind, uh, because they have a plan in mind doesn't mean you should ignore the other things you see along the way. So it was a, it was a good learning experience. It led to another interesting Palm story, which we'll talk about another time, uh, when it comes to analyzing a production line, which was, would come in handy later when I went to Jawbone and did manufacturing analytics, which wasn't why they hired me, but it, because nobody else was doing it, I just decided to do it. So we'll get to that another time. Anyway. So yeah, the, uh, enabling people to do things. And as it happens, I have a different podcast that you may remember. I've mentioned the, um, FFS. I call it FFS talk podcast because FFS itself is, <laughs> the internet is lousy with those three letters and that's can't get a Twitter handle for that. So FFS talk on anchor and FFS talk com on Twitter and so on. Uh, I did a, an episode yesterday. I recorded it yesterday about an hour of just me rambling, unfortunately rambling about changing the world. And since I committed the hour of talking to audio and, and uploaded it and published it, it occurs to me that I left out a whole bunch of stuff and, and, uh, you know, I had the show notes had some things in it that were, that, that I didn't actually end up talking about, which were relevant, which I will now follow up uh, after I record this and publish it. I will publish part two, the unplanned part two, but it's sort of interesting when you, when you look at changing the world or some lofty goal like that, you know, Palm was going to ship a, a fairly not revolutionary, but definitely more than evolutionary device, uh, 
for the time, I mean, it was it was a really impressive little pocket computer, and much more hacker friendly than the things you can buy now. Enabling users with things like that, it would be amazing to see what people could come up with. And my time with uh, Intel in the Maker Innovator Group, you know, that basically crystallized that that uh, notion that when you enable people, you know, they they have better ideas than you do. <laughs> so changing the world, part of changing the world is to f- determine what that change is doing. If you are changing the world by enabling people to do amazing things, you know, to, to, to hearken back to Steve jobs. Um, he said, yeah, humans walking are not so efficient, but when you put them on a bicycle, they become the most efficient bio locomotion entity ever. So when you, when you enable people to multiply their efforts like that, to apply their own leverage, it's amazing what they'll come up with. And I think changing the world is going to include more enabling, less, um, less controlling, uh, less control for the sake of control or <laughs> less control for the sake of profit. So, uh, the entire maker notion, enabling people to turn their ideas into reality and, and all that stuff. I think that is a, a key component of changing the world or continuing to change the world. So I'm going to have to redo, uh, not redo, I'm going to have to uh, augment with a bonus follow-up episode, the continuation, a part two, delivering Big Delta 2. And... Uh, I mean, I, I had an entire uh, bit on physicists talking about string theory and M theory, and uh, there's a a physicist in Germany, Sabina Hassenfelder, who does, I believe, her podcast is Science Without the Gobbledygook, and uh, Eric Weinstein calls her in a in an interview I posted in my show notes for that, which I never even got to. Uh, he calls her a curmudgeon, <laughs> a physics curmudgeon, because she's a uh, she's kind of the voice of reason and I think that's invaluable. And so when you enable that sort of interaction with your users where they can say, Hey, this doesn't work or, Hey, I did this with your product and I, it works better like this, right? You and everybody wins. So something to think about, uh, in my show notes for this episode, I also have a, a list of tools and services that I'm migrating away from and the replacements, just my ongoing effort to uh, to make things around me work for me. As I get older, you get older, same same time, crazy. But uh, I'm starting to realize that I I really don't want to waste my time on bad customer service, on products that don't work, products that I spend products or services that I spend my time and or money on that don't do what I need them to do or that do it poorly. <clears throat> who who has time for disappointment? Not us. So on that note, I want to thank you. Uh, the show notes are at quagglingsand.substack.com. There's a link to that in the anchor or your other podcast source in the description. If you, however it gets displayed in your podcast client or if you're listening on the web there should be a description of the episode and so there will be a link but you can visit quaggling sand if you found this podcast you know how that's spelled q u o g g l i n g s a n d quaggling sand it's of course what i called pins and needles when circular circulation returns to your hand or your foot or whatever when you've been sitting on one of them I think I was five, four, something like that. So quagglingsand.substack.com for the show notes uh, newsletter. There will be a link to this individual episode in the newsletter. So if you are subscribed, you will get a link to the newsletter, the newsletter itself in the show note description. It sounds very confusing. This is why I should just publish the whole damn thing myself. But... uh, (laughs) quagglingsand.substack.com. Subscribe to the newsletter if you like, and 
there will be some other stuff in there about supporting the show or I would like to have guests on because who wants to listen to me ramble on for an hour at a time? I'm going to guess about three people. But over time, uh, people can certainly join in the conversation. I would love to talk about what you're working on. Maybe uh, maybe I can express some thoughts on, uh, if you want, on what you're working on based on the various tales I have to tell. Some of them I will share here. Some I will share interactively. But I've certainly seen, seen a bit. Um, yeah, I got to tell, there's a story about <laughs> when Apple stopped allowing licensing of their products for clones, power computing, and I worked at UMAX computing and the differences and how that unfolded. Very interesting. So that'll be in an upcoming episode. I got, I got loads of them. I got stories from, from, uh, <laughs> from, from sunrise to sunset. And I'll, uh, tell you all of them over time eventually, especially if there's somebody to tell them to as a guest on my show. On that note, I will, uh, I will wish you well. It's been just over one hour. I don't know how I managed to uh, talk for so long without putting myself to sleep. So you wake up, get on with your day. Thanks for listening. Don't forget to share with your friends. That's how I get four listeners. Take it easy. Until next week. Bye-bye.